I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to season two of Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. Last year, our episodes were played over 10,000 times to help listeners like you crush the PCS exam, and they did. This year, you can expect more content and even more review to help you feel confident on test day. Let's not waste any more time. Time to study. Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram or Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics or send us an email at pushingpediatrics at gmail.com. Hey guys, have you been thinking about joining MedBridge to access the PCS prep program? but just haven't jumped on it yet? Well, we have a special offer for you. We've partnered with MedBridge to offer you all a special discount code on their subscriptions. You can either go onto their MedBridge page and use the code PUSHINGPEDS for $150 off of your subscription or click on the link on the episode summary to go directly to our Pushing Pediatrics page. Follow us, but not studying for the PCS exam? That's okay. You can still use this discount code as well. Share it with your colleagues and other friends who may be studying for their other specialty exams. You all know how much we utilized MedBridge during our studying and how we based our entire study plan off of their content. So take advantage of this special offer and purchase your MedBridge subscription today. Welcome back to another Pushing Pediatrics episode. This week, we are covering the Brachial Plexus Clinical Summary. We will pair it with a Brachial Plexus case study later in the week. We are loving this new format of pairing clinical information with a case study from the case files book. We really think that it's a great way to absorb the information and solidify the concepts for test day. Moving on to the content for this week, the brachial plexus is a vital network of nerves originating from the ventral rami of C5 through spinal nerve T1, supplying both motor and sensory input to the upper extremity. Make sure you spend some time visually studying the complexities of the brachial plexus. The origin is at roots C5 to T1. Then the nerves divide into an anterior and posterior division. The anterior and posterior divisions from the brachial plexus form three cords, the lateral, medial, and posterior. Moving distally along the plexus, branches that form off the root include C5, C6, for the musculocutaneous nerve and axillary nerve, with C5 to T1 all contributing to the median nerve and the radial nerve. There are also collateral branches off of the brachial plexus that serve to supply function to the upper extremity. The clinical summary breaks it down by nerve and muscle for your review. 
a perinatal brachial plexus injury, also referred to as a PBPI, happens when there is damage to the plexus in utero or during delivery, resulting in a flaccid or partially affected upper extremity. An injury involving the brachial plexus can impact both sensation and motor impairment of the upper extremity. There are a few causes or risk factors leading to an injury, and those include things like a high birth weight, shoulder dystocia, prolonged labor, maternal gestational diabetes, or a breech delivery. The most common injury is an upper brachial plexus palsy, referred to as Herb's Duchenne palsy. This involves C5 and C6 spinal nerves, as well as the subscapular and musculocutaneous nerves. The next most common injury is an extended brachial plexus injury that involves C5, C6, C7. So this is the same as the Herbs Duchenne with the addition of C7 involvement. A global plexus injury involves C5 through T1. An isolated lower brachial plexus injury referred to as Klumpke's palsy, is actually quite rare. It involves the C8 and T1 spinal nerves, ulnar nerve, and intrinsic muscles of the hand. There is also loss of sensory function on the medial forearm and digits. As therapists, the classification of location of injury to include the upper plexus injury, C5, C6, extended upper plexus injury, C5, C6, C7, lower plexus injury, C8, T1, and global plexus injury, C5 to T1, would be the most beneficial in determining impairments and function for age-appropriate goal setting. The mechanism of injury in Herb's palsy, which is that C5 to C6, is when there is a separation of the head and shoulder through traction, commonly known as a stretch injury. An injury to C5, C6 results in that classic waiter's tip presentation of the upper extremity. The upper extremity is in extension, internal rotation, and adduction of the shoulder in combination with elbow extension and pronation and wrist and finger flexion. Grasp is left intact with an upper plexus injury, delineating that from a lower plexus injury. There may be a loss of sensation in combination with motor impairment. When C7 is injured in conjunction with that C5 and C6, the injury is then termed an extended palsy injury. This injury appearance is the classic waiter's tip position that we described earlier in combination with wrist drop due to the weakness of wrist extension. Elbow extension is also impaired with the involvement of C7. Injury to C8 and T1, a lower brachial plexus injury, known as that Klumke's palsy, is usually secondary to trauma from shoulder hyperabduction traction. Horner's syndrome is often associated with this type of plexus injury when there is an avulsion of T1. A global plexus injury results in C5 through T1 injury to include a separation between the cervical spine and shoulder in conjunction with a traction injury. A global plexus injury results in impairments of the shoulder, forearm, wrist, and finger movements. Horner syndrome is usually also present here. The clinical summary has a great table breakdown on the level of injury, the mechanism, and the initial clinical appearance you will see. 
There are two categories of brachial plexus injuries, the initial injury, and then the shoulder sequelae that comes after, secondary to muscle imbalances, following lack of recovery in infants after two months of age. Sadly, new data is showing a lower recovery rate than initially thought, so it is important to understand the initial injury and the secondary impairments associated with PBPI to include shoulder, elbow, and scapula impairments. So if a child makes a full recovery by two months of age, you're probably not going to see any difficulty with functional use of that extremity. However, after two months, if there isn't complete recovery, you're going to likely see some of that dysfunction of the shoulder complex due to these muscle imbalances. The clinical summary has a great chart outlining the shoulder sequelae. Additionally, there's a table that outlines each nerve root and the muscles and actions innervated by that nerve root and the impact from that. It would be a great chart to review while you are simultaneously looking at your brachial plexus pictures so that you have a really good understanding of the injury and muscle involvement related to that injury. When examining a newborn or infant with probably or diagnosed brachial plexus injury, make sure to use a lot of caution with the involved extremity. This includes caution while lifting, not pulling up on the arms or under the axilla. It is better to cradle them and support them from the trunk. During the initial exam, some red flags to watch out for include flaccid hand past one month of age, signs and symptoms of Horner syndrome, which both indicate an avulsion injury, crying with passive movement, which may indicate a subluxation or other injury to the shoulder, concerns with feeding, oxygenation, and asymmetric chest expansion and breathing difficulties, which could indicate partial denervation to the diaphragm and warrant further screening for phrenic nerve injury are other things to consider. With your general assessment, after you assess those red flags we just talked about, you will want to look at their posture at rest, their muscle tone, range of motion, strength, reflexes, and their function. For strength, you can use tests such as the active movement scale for birth to 15 years old, the modified mallet scale, or manual muscle testing for older children. For a functional assessment, you might use something like the hand use at home questionnaire, the brachial plexus outcome measure, the assisting hand assessment, or the pediatric evaluation of disability. Last, you need a developmental milestone assessment using clinical observations or something like the Peabody or the Alberta Infant Motor Skills. There is a really good evaluation findings flowchart in the clinical summary that helps with treatment determination and referral to a brachial plexus specialist. Factors that prompt close monitoring during the early stage and the need for a specialist include absence of any of the following, active wrist extension, active elbow extension, or absence of active elbow flexion. Conservative intervention includes maintaining range of motion, promoting functional use, and strengthening of muscles. It is important to avoid compensations during early childhood development. Conservative interventions include maintaining range of motion, promoting functional usage, and strengthening of muscles. It's important to make sure to avoid compensations during the early childhood development. 
Other interventions that could be included are things like family and caregiver education for passive range of motion, tummy time, and positioning. We want to encourage weight shifting activities to develop that proximal stability. A motor planning program to stimulate activity in the denervated muscles, encourage symmetrical patterns, engage the visual field to counter any neglect, and make sure to work on bilateral hand use. Splints and taping may be used along with Botox. In addition to conservative management, there are surgeries that may take place. This is either primary surgery, which is focused on the nerve to restore structure and function at the site of the nerve damage, or something like secondary surgeries, which really focus on the dysfunction that's caused by the sequelae of the denervation. These surgeries are things like contracture releases, tendon transfers, or osteotomies. The clinic summary does detail these surgical interventions in more detail. Early intervention is well documented as the need for multidisciplinary referral should begin as early as one month. The team should include a physical therapist or occupational therapist and a peripheral nerve surgeon. When to initiate surgical intervention is important to the plan of care. There is a push for early surgery given advances in surgical intervention and low yielding complication but the team also provides a window for spontaneous recovery to occur without the need for surgery. The window for determining surgical intervention is within ages three to nine months. Obviously, we can be a team member here, but we are not going to be making these final decisions. The clinical summary does detail these decisions, but again, I think this is useful to be aware of, but it's beyond our scope of practice. We will see you guys back here on Friday when we will go over the case study from the case files book related to brachial plexus injury. We can't wait to tie it all together for you and help you feel confident about brachial plexus injuries. We also have an episode on this from season one, so make sure to go back and review that as well. Happy studying. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next time. And remember, you totally got it.